My wife says that uh, of all the people she knows, I am the most confidently wrong person that she, she has, has had contact with. Now, let, let me say that my wife is a wonderful lady. We've been married for 21 years now, and here's what she means by that. There will be times where I, just, I know the answer. I, I just know that this particular answer is correct. I'm 100% positive that it is. And so in the course of our marriage of 21 years now, we have this, this occurrence that sometimes she knows she's right, and I know I'm right, and we're saying something very different. And so I'm 100% that I'm right. She's 100% that she's right. And so we will say, do you want to shake on it? Now, shaking on something in my house is a very rare occurrence. It only happens about twice a year. You know, in the course of 21 years, maybe we have shaken on something 40 times or so. Well, when we're both real serious about we know we're right, it'll be something like a song will come over the radio, and I will say, well, that is so-and-so who sings that. And she'll look at me, she'll say, Kyle, that is not so-and-so. That's this other person. And I'll say, babe, I know it's this person. I'll say then, do you want to shake on she will then say, yes, I'm 100%. I'll shake on it with you. In 21 years, we've shaken probably 40 times or so. I have been right. Exactly once. In the course of our entire marriage when shaking on something. She has been right uh, 39 times and I have been right once. Now, Now, that doesn't mean that I'm wrong all the time. I am right sometimes. In fact, I'm right a large portion of the time about a lot of stuff. But, you know, about a lot of stuff, I'm, I feel like I'm right sometimes. In fact, sometimes I'm 100% sure that I know I'm right, but I'm just, I'm, I'm not. You know, when it comes to the singer of a song, the artist who sings a song, that doesn't really make that big of a difference, does it? No, not that big. But sometimes it can be real dangerous thinking that you're right when you're not right. I moved into my house there in Florence, and it was the first time we had ever had a garage door that closed. And you just press the button and it closed, and you press the button and it opened. And, you know, when we were growing up, if you had a garage door, the garage door opener wasn't stuck up here on your visor. It was sitting in the back seat, and my dad would say, hey, get out and open the door. And one of us boys, three boys, would get out and open the door. That was the garage door opener. But man, moved into that house in Florence, and you just press a little button, and it went up and down. And I didn't understand really the technology behind what would happen. And so one time I walked under it while it was going down, and it went back up. And I thought, oh, this has got like that elevator type technology where if something gets in the way, it will go back up. And so my son at the time, this was my oldest son, I think he was about six or seven, and I was kind of playing with the door. It was pretty nice, pressing the button, doing stuff. And Drew said, hey, can I come under the door? And I said, yeah, no problem. Just come on. Well, it was getting real close, and his head was about to kind of go toward being under the door. And my wife comes out and says, you know, what are you doing? She hits a button, raises up. I said, hey, this will, it'll stop. It, it, there's no way it'll squish his head because, you know, it's like an elevator. It's got that little pressure sensor or whatever. Well, Come to find out, garage doors don't have pressure sensors like an elevator has. And there is an offset laser that's about three inches from where the door actually comes down. And if something blocks that laser, then it causes the door to go up. But my son's head wasn't getting all the way through. It wasn't about to. It didn't look like it was. And so I almost 
told my son to come under the garage door and get his head smushed because I thought I knew what was going on. You know, sometimes thinking you know something and and not knowing it can be very dangerous. It can be something that will get you in serious trouble. You ever talk to a person that's just not reliable? They don't show up when they say they will. What they say is the case is not the case. They explain something to you and later you find out that they weren't really telling you the truth about that. And sometimes it can cause real problems in business, sometimes in marriage, trust issues arise. You know, the idea of being reliable, of being correct, of being a person that when you say it, it happens, well, that's very important. Because sometimes people that trust you, like my son, will rest Sometimes their physical lives in your hand because they think you know what you're talking about. Now, let's move this discussion to the Bible. Is the Bible reliable? Now, there are two aspects to that question as we look at it. Number one, what we're trying to say there is when the Bible says something, is it true? When God speaks, as it's recorded in the 66 books that you're holding in your hand, can you count on that being true? And so the question just comes to us, how in the world would we understand, would we find out, would we learn if the Bible's reliable? Well, as you look at that question, you are just trying to determine, is the Bible correct? When it says this or that, does it happen? You know, you can do an intense search and study of the Bible's correctness. And what you quickly find out is that when the Bible has something to say, if you can check it, it's always exactly right. For instance, if you were to go into the Old Testament, you were to read the story of Hezekiah that's found in several of those historical books, you would read about a king who ascended to power because God had anointed him, but he ran into a very serious situation with a king from Assyria named Sennacherib. And Sennacherib had surrounded the city of Jerusalem and had taken lots of the cities surrounding Jerusalem and in the area of Judea. And the Bible says that Hezekiah understood Sennacherib was coming up and he didn't want to leave all of the water resources outside of Jerusalem. So he built a huge tunnel underneath Jerusalem. And he brought the water from the upper Gihon down into the pool there in the middle of Jerusalem. And so it's just a a statement of what the Bible would consider historical fact that Hezekiah dug a tunnel under Jerusalem to bring water into the city. So when Sennacherib came up against the city, he wouldn't find all of those resources and it wouldn't help his army. Well, ask the simple question, you know, if somebody digs a big tunnel underneath a city like Jerusalem, should you be able to go and see if it's there? Should you be able to go and find that? No, there are some things in the Bible that you wouldn't expect to leave much of a physical mark. Jesus walking on the water. You wouldn't expect to find any footprints on that water. You wouldn't expect to find any real archaeological evidence of that. But somebody digging a tunnel under the city of Jerusalem? No, that's going to leave a mark. Kind of like some of the bike wrecks that I was in, you know, as I was a kid. That's going to leave a mark right there. Even if somebody has filled in 
the tunnel. You should be able to see where it was dug and things that happened under there because you just can't cover that kind of thing up. Well, when you go to the city of Jerusalem and you start doing some investigative research, what you quickly realize is not only was there a tunnel that was dug by Hezekiah, it's still there. When I was at Freed Hardman, several of my fellow students decided they were going to make a trip to the Holy Lands, as they are called. And I have a picture of some of my students that are, some of my fellow students at the time, that are in Hezekiah's tunnel. It's still there. You can still walk through it. And at the end of Hezekiah's tunnel, there was an inscription called the Siloam inscription. It was found in 1885 by two young boys that were swimming in this particular pool. And on this Siloam inscription, it explains exactly how Hezekiah dug the tunnel under Jerusalem. It talks about how he sent one work group from one end and another work group from the other end. And they snaked their way to the center and they could yell across the very thin last layer of rocks toward each other. And they could hear what each other were saying. And then finally they struck, the text says, pick against pick. And the water came running through for, oh, I think it was about 1,800 cubits. And so the Bible says there's a tunnel under Jerusalem. You go to Jerusalem and you look under Jerusalem and, and what do you find? You find a a tunnel. You know, the word of the Lord is the entity that throughout the text of Scripture says will never be destroyed. It's a lamp to the feet and a light to the path, and it is something that will last forever. Now, what that means, it's twofold. It means, number one, it's always right, and number two, nobody can destroy it. It's going to be around, and it's going to be testifying to humanity until Jesus Christ comes again. And that word, when it says somebody dug a tunnel under Jerusalem, guess what? Somebody dug a tunnel under Jerusalem. Now, you can do this repeatedly over and over if you would like to, and just find the things that the Bible says and go and check them. Several years ago, in 2008, a guy by the name of Rene Psalm. Rene Psalm was a skeptic, and I think still is, and he spent about eight years of his life writing a book called The Myth of Nazareth. And what Rene Psalm did in this book, he included, oh, I don't know, I'm going to say 325 pages of very, very scholarly writing, and it's got all kinds of footnotes and big words and chemical analysis of pottery, etc. And here's what he says in the book. He says, Christianity cannot be true because there was no Nazareth in the time of the first century when the Bible says Jesus arrived. And so on the back of this particular book, you read where the skeptical community has said this is the greatest accusation that can be upheld against Christianity. If Christianity doesn't have an answer to this, then it's finished in the 21st century because Renaissance has done such an effective job at proving there was no Nazareth. End of story. Well, now, I read the book. I've got the book there in my office. And as I read it, I realized, okay, we can answer all of these things. Like I said, it came out in 2008, so I happened to run across it, read it, and it took me a while. It was a very boring book to read in a whole lot of ways, but uh, decided I was going to answer it. And so spent 5,000, 6,000 words answering this book on how 
the arguments in it do not disprove Christianity. Okay. Did a, did a very effective job, I felt like. I, it was good. It was, it was material that refuted this book. And it was useless. And let me tell you what I mean by it being useless. The very next year, in 2009, now sometimes I think God does this on purpose. We had not up to this point found any archaeological remains in the area where we thought Nazareth would be. Now that makes a lot of sense because Nazareth was recognized as such an unimportant town, as such a small town that in fact somebody in the Bible at one period of time when they heard that Jesus was from Nazareth, they said, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? It was, it was despised as a very small, poor, unimportant place. And so it, it's not surprising that there wasn't a whole lot of archaeological information about it. Rene Psalm comes out with his book in 2008. He spends eight years of his life studying the subject and says, I now have the piece of information that will defeat Christianity. The next year, researchers in the area uncover a 900 square foot house that dates back to the first century that is in exactly the spot where Nazareth was and happens to be the exact kind of house that you would expect to find in a very unimportant, rural, small community. Worldwide, the find was recognized as Nazareth. The year after Rene Psalm writes his book, supposedly dealing the death blow to Christianity. Now, here's what I'm saying on this. When the Bible says something, it's always right. Now, as you're looking at the reliability of the Word of God, you can see how God used His spokespeople to prove this kind of idea. In fact, if if you really look at what God's trying to do with His people throughout the course of human history, He's trying to explain to them, if I say it, that's what will happen. Now, if you look at the story of Moses, and Moses is called to bring the children of Israel out of Egypt in the book of Exodus. It's a very powerful, very very memorable story about what happens with the Israelites and God calls Moses and says, I want you to go into Egypt and I want you to bring them out into Canaan. And Moses says, well, I'm not a very good speaker and God works him through all that. And then God sends Moses to Egypt and he's going to be introducing himself to Pharaoh and he says, let my people go. Pharaoh says, no, we're not letting your people go. I'm paraphrasing, of course. And Moses says, okay, if you don't, then I'm going to turn, God will turn all of the water in the river to blood. What happens when Moses says God's going to turn all of the water in the river to blood? Well, that's exactly what happens. All of the water in the river turns to blood. And then you see God through Moses repeatedly trying to get across this idea to Pharaoh, if I say it, it happens. And you finally get to that plague of hail 
And that plague of hail is so very interesting because several of the Egyptians had started to realize that if God says it, it's going to happen. If God through Moses mentions anything and says this will happen in the future, then that's what happens in the future. And Moses goes to Pharaoh and tells him the exact time that the hail is going to come. He says, there's going to be hail that hits this land, and it's going to be hail unlike any that you've ever seen. It's going to be the worst that you have ever imagined. No hail storm like it has ever hit Egypt or ever will. And he tells them when it will happen. Now, for illustration purposes, let's just say he says something like 3 o'clock in the afternoon. He tells them it will happen at this time. Now, the Bible doesn't record what time he says it will happen. But the text does say that all of the Israelites and Egyptians who feared the word of the Lord got their servants and their cattle and their livestock inside. But all of the ones who didn't left their cattle and their servants outside. And then when the designated time came, let's say 3 o'clock in the afternoon, just like someone had hit a switch. Exactly when God said that hail would come, that hail came. I see, because when God says it, that's what happens. You know, several years ago, there was a bumper sticker that was pretty popular. And that bumper sticker said, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. You know, that sounds pretty good. It's a, it's a pretty good sounding bumper sticker. It's just got one little issue in my, in my opinion. And my opinion is, on that particular bumper sticker, it doesn't matter whether you believe it or not. You know, we would put our opinion in there and say, well, I, well God said it, and I believe it, and so that says, well, no, you're believing it doesn't settle. God said it. That settles it. You know, if God says hail is going to come at 3 p.m. on the afternoon of April the 5th, 1432 B.C., that's what's going to happen whether you believe it or not. Now, some of the Egyptians, they believed it. And they saved all of their livestock and they saved all of their servants. And some of the Egyptians didn't believe it. And they lost all their livestock and all their servants because they didn't understand the principle. When God says it, if it's in God's word and if it's God bringing the message, then it always is the case. Now, you're going to need to internalize that truth if you're ever going to live this life like it's supposed to be lived. And as we then bring that idea over to the New Testament, You look there in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. And the text then explains that the Word was involved in creation. And verse 14 of that says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father, Father, full of grace and truth. Who's the Bible talking about when it talks about the Word in John chapter 1? Well, of course, it's talking about Jesus. Jesus being the Word incarnate. Jesus being God in the flesh coming to earth. And now, whatever you can apply to the Word, you can apply to Jesus in the sense of reliability. And so what we find out is when Jesus said something, what was the case? It was always right. 
Now you start looking at the ministry of Jesus and you start to see that that was one of his main problems, main issues that he had with his followers. They believed some of, some of the stuff, but just not, not all of it. He would tell them that something was going to happen. And sometimes they would think, oh, okay, great. And then he would tell them something's going to happen. And they would think, well, we're not really sure that that can be the case. You know, as you start to look at the text, it's very interesting. I think it's in Mark chapter 14 or so. He explains to them that when you go into Jerusalem, it was the Passover time. And this was going to be when he was going to be instituting the Last Supper. He says, when you go into Jerusalem, you're going to find a man carrying a water pot. And when you do... He's going to take you to a house where there's an upper room and go into that upper room and prepare the Passover for us. You know, sometimes we skip over some of the little details of what the Bible says. The man's going to be doing what? He can be carrying a water pot. Now, in the course of your reading the Bible, generally speaking, who carries water pots? No, generally, almost always, the women do. Now, let's look at, you know, maybe, I don't know what the division of labor is at your house. Uh, we have one at my house, and, and it's not set in stone. It's not like it's a rule. It's not like, okay, here, Kyle does this and Bethany does this. But generally speaking, that's, that's the case, and there are you know, some pretty good reasons for that. I, I don't generally mop anything at my house. Uh, I don't mop the floors. I just have, you know, I haven't had a lot of experience mopping, and my wife is an excellent mopper. I mean, she's a professional mopper, and so far as she's been doing it, you know, longer than... We've been married even. She, she's a great mopper. And the time or two that I have mopped things at the house, you know, my level of, of dirt retention on the floor is pretty high. I mean, you know, I'll run something over it and it'll look good enough to me. And my wife will probably think, that might need a going over. You might have to lick that calf again right there. You know, I, I, don't, I don't have a real high level of let's make sure this floor is, you know, so, so my wife has, has mopped our floors for years. But she's never weeded at our yard. I don't know if at your house, the, your wife or, or any of the women in your house weeded. I have seen some women that weeded. We've got a, a couple that mows yards in our neighborhood where the wife does the weeding. Okay, that's, that, that happens. But at my house, I do the weeding, my wife does the mopping. Now, in the first century, and way back before the first century, when you look at Abraham's servant going to try to find Isaac a wife, you'll remember that he had prayed to God in his heart that the first woman that came to him and offered him water and then offered to water the camels were, well, why would he go to the well? I mean, what's the purpose of I'm going to camp out at this well until I see what? Well, to us, woman coming to get water. Well, why would you go to a well for a woman to come get water? Because that was, generally speaking, the job that women did. You see Jesus in John chapter 4, the woman at the well. She's coming to get water in the middle of the day. And, you know, I would think that Jesus' disciples would have thought, you mean I'm going to go in, I'm, gonna, I'm going to go into Jerusalem. I'm going to find a guy carrying a water pot. Now, number one, Jerusalem would swell about four times population-wise during the Passover. So there were anywhere between 800,000 to 1.2 million people in Jerusalem at the time of the Passover. And you're going to walk into Jerusalem and you're going to find a guy who's carrying a water pot. And this guy is going to be the one guy, maybe among hundreds of thousands, 
who's carrying a water pot and he's going to take you to an upper room that's going to be reserved for you. You know, as they were going, do you think they were wondering what this guy's going to be wearing? What's he going to look like? I mean, how, what, what streets he going to be on? Where, where are we going to see this guy? And so they walk into Jerusalem and boom, all of a sudden they see this guy carrying a water pot. And they go up to him probably and ask him, but they, you know about the, the room? And he says, oh yeah, follow me. And they go to the room. Now, how many times would Jesus have to do something like that for his apostles, disciples, followers to recognize that he is always right? You know, my dad had a saying when I was growing up. Now, you know, work with me on this right here. But my dad's saying was, son, if I tell you that a chicken dips snuff, you better look under its wing." Did, now, just to show hands, if you don't mind, did anybody else's dad have that saying or any saying similar to that? You did? Really? Okay, now I have found that it, it's not all that common of a saying. And when I was a kid, I didn't really understand it. Now, my dad was not a proponent of smokeless tobacco. He was not uh, chewing or dipping or doing anything with snuff himself at the time that he was talking to me. He would not have condoned that at all in a... All he was saying was, well, I didn't know what in the world he was saying at the time. Uh, for years, he would say that, and as a kid, I thought, what, what, what are you trying to say? Well, if I, I don't know if I finally you know, figured it out or asked him, but I said, Dad, what's the, what are you trying to say when you say, if I tell you that a chicken dips snuff, you better look under his wing? What, what are you trying to say? Well, and the explanation was, have you ever seen a chicken dip snuff? You know, there's a couple problems with chickens dipping snuff. Number one, they don't even have fingers, and they couldn't get it out of the can. Number two, they have a beak. And in a beak, snuff just wouldn't work. And number three, no, nobody's ever seen a chicken dip snuff. It's not something that happens. He said, all right, so chickens don't sniff, dip snuff, but if I tell you that one does, that, that chicken right there, then you need to look under its wing. Because what was he saying I would find? Can of snuff. He said, you might not have ever seen the chicken dip snuff, but if I tell you that one does right there, then that one does, and you better look under his wing because you're going to find some snuff. Now, at the time, I thought, my dad's crazy. I mean, I but that doesn't make that. And, you know, every time he would be right, he would say this. He would be like, what did I tell you about that old chicken? Now, when he was wrong, we didn't hear much about the chicken. You know, the snuff-packing poultry didn't make the conversation. But when he was right, well, what did I tell you about that chicken? Now, I say that to say, there were times as a kid where my dad would tell me something that as a five-year-old, six-year-old, seven-year-old, I thought was outlandish. That that could not be the case. That that couldn't really happen. But Come to find out, my dad knew more than I did about the situation, and it did happen, and it was the case, and my dad was right about that. Now, you understand that my dad wasn't always right, but about so much that I just didn't understand, my dad was correct. Now, I want to take you to a story that's very similar to that in one regard, and that is, as you go there to Matthew, oh, I think it's Matthew chapter 19, let me look, Jesus is going into the city with Peter. 
Uh, Matthew chapter 17, rather. And it's in verse 24, if you want to read it. It's very interesting. The leaders of the Jewish community come to Peter and they say, Hey, does your teacher pay the temple tax? And Peter says, Yeah, he does. But Peter doesn't really know what Jesus' stance really is on the temple tax. It's like he answers for Jesus before he really finds out. And so he goes back to Jesus, and the text says that Jesus knows what he's thinking and what he's about to say. And he poses a question to Peter and says, Peter, let me ask you a question. When a king makes people pay taxes, who does he make pay the taxes, his citizens or his children? You understand that most of the time kings don't make their own children pay taxes, but they do make their citizens. And so Peter is thinking through this and he's thinking, well, the kids of the king don't have to pay their dad taxes. And so he says, Peter does in response to Jesus, he says, well, the citizens pay taxes. And Jesus says, so the sons, so the children are free from taxes. Okay, what's the point here? My father is God. If the temple is owned by God then I don't have to pay the temple tax because I'm the son of God. I don't have to pay my dad taxes. Okay, easy to understand. But then he says, lest we offend them. Now here is, to me, an amazing story. He says, lest we offend them, go down to the sea, cast a hook in, and pull out a fish. The first fish that you catch. And look in its mouth. And you will find a piece of money. Do fish have money in their mouth? I mean, I'm not a professional fisherman. Peter was a professional fisherman. He had fished for years and years. I have fished all over the country. In fact, fished, you know, down in Okeechobee, fished up in Alaska. My wife and I went silver salmon fishing for our five-year anniversary, a good brother from the church up there guided us out there, and my wife got a 31-pounder, I got an 18-pounder, and so a lot of fun, had a great time catching fish up there. You know, I'm a recreational fisherman, and that means I I love to fish. I had, when I was in high school, there's a creek below our house there on Albert Matthews Road that I had one little rebel caterpillar lure that I had used for about two years, and we literally counted how many fish we had caught on these little rebel lures, and I think I had caught 1,038 fish on this one little lure, and the reason you could do that, because the fish weren't very big, and the creek was only from about here to the podium, and so if you ever got it hung, you could wait over there and unhang it and keep the lure. And so, you know, in the course of my life, maybe I've caught, at the most, maybe, I don't know, 5,000 fish. I was down in Okeechobee, there was a lady at the congregation that she was a guide. She was a professional guide on Lake Okeechobee. It's the second largest inland lake in the world. It's 60 miles across. Interestingly, it doesn't get much more than six feet deep. You can wade basically across the whole thing, but it's filled with all kinds of big fish, huge bass and shell cracker. She will catch sometimes 300 shell cracker a day when she would take people and guide. And so you're looking at five days a week. You're talking about 1,500 shell cracker a week throughout the course of a summer. I don't know, if you fish, you're in a pretty good location to do some fishing. You know, I've, I've found all kinds of stuff in the mouths of fish. You know, I've found crawdads 
in the mouths of fish. I was fishing with my buddy not, not long ago, and I broke off my lure on a bass that he came up, grabbed my lure, and my string broke off. Well, my buddy threw right in that same hole. Bam! Bass hit his. He pulled it up. He said, Kyle, what color was your string? I said, my string was green. He looked. He said, yep. Well, that was the exact same bass that had just broken off my lure, found my lure in the bass's mouth. I, I don't know what you found in a fishing mouth. You ever found a coin? Any money whatsoever, rolled up dollar bill, you know, even like a, a, a wooden nickel in the mouth of a fish. You think Peter had ever found any money in a fish's mouth? He'd been a professional fisherman for probably 20 years of his life. Probably, actually, probably grew up fishing with his dad, probably cleaning thousands of fish. You think Peter, when Jesus said, go down and cast a hook into the sea and pick up the first fish you catch and look in its mouth. What do you think Peter thought? <laughs> money in a fish's mouth. Well, you don't find money in fish's mouth, but if I tell you that fish right there has money in its mouth, well, then you better look in its mouth. So Peter goes down, throws the hook in. I, I can't imagine what Peter was thinking. I've, I've never caught a fish with money in its mouth. This is the most outlandish thing I've ever heard of. I've been fishing for years. He feels a tug on that hook, pulls it up, thinks, well, let's see. Now, I don't know what kind of uh, understanding you have of the money that was going on in the first century. I didn't for a long time until I did a little more research on this particular story. The money that you have probably heard about in the Bible, uh, two mites, what the widow had that she gave all that she had, the two mites. But probably the most common piece of money that you read about and probably know from first century Judaism there in the biblical record is that uh, denarii or denarius, that one day's wage coin. Well, what's interesting about the text of this particular story is it doesn't use a denarius, it doesn't use a mite. You're not going to find a random coin in the fish's mouth. You're going to find a stator. And a stator was the exact change for the temple tax for two people. So it's not as if you're going to find a $100 bill and you're going to have to pay 32 of it to the temple authorities, you're going to find 3250 in the fish's mouth. The exact change for two people. And so Peter goes down and he pulls up that fish and he looks in its mouth and there is a stator that he takes and pays the temple tax even though Jesus doesn't really have to pay it. What's Jesus trying to do? Could Jesus have gotten that temple tax paid any, in any number of ways beside that. Why do you think he sent Peter down to the sea to catch a fish? If I say it, then that means it's going to happen, no matter how outlandish, no matter how much you believe it's not, no matter how much experience you have had with this type of thing and have not seen it to be the case, if I say it, it's going to be the case. You know, it was a hard lesson for Peter to learn, wasn't it? In fact, th this didn't teach it to him. 
You know, how many times would you think, personally you, think that you would have to be shown something like that to believe the statement, if Jesus says it, it's true? Ten? Ten times you pull a fish out or you go find a guy carrying a water pot or you... Well, it was a lot more than that for Peter, but still, there at the end, when Jesus explained that, I'm going up to Jerusalem, and when I go up there, the chief priests and the leaders, they're going to capture me, and they are going to crucify me, and I'm going to come back from the grave three days after that, and all of you are going to be made to stumble because of me. You know, I, I don't know who designed that sound right there. But I'm going to tell you exactly what that sounds like. When I was growing up, we, we did a lot with cattle. And uh, you, there was this little, I guess it was what, about a, I don't know what the voltage was, of those square batteries that you would stick in the end of a cattle prod. And me and my brothers thought it would be fun to see, you know, who could handle getting shocked with the cattle prod the most. And that's the exact sound it made when you pressed the button and stuck it on one of your brother's legs. Exactly right there. What's that? That's why you use it. Basically, it's to remind the preacher that, that if you don't stop soon, it's going to happen. Hey, I mean, if we... Now, where was I? That cattle prod. Just, I felt the shock going on. Oh, yeah, yeah. Jesus saying to Peter and the rest of the apostles, everybody, all of y'all are going to be made to stumble. You remember what Peter said? The, I mean, I... I understand what you're trying to say about these other people, Jesus, but not me. You know, lots of times we think Jesus understands everything about a fish and money in its mouth. And the Bible's right always about somebody digging a tunnel under Jerusalem or Nazareth being there. But Jesus doesn't quite understand. And he hadn't quite gotten right what I'm going on, what's going on in my personality. Because I'll never deny you, Jesus. Oh, really? You know, basically, Jesus says, oh, really, Peter? Well, the rooster won't crow this night before you deny me three times. And sure enough, if Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me, guess what Peter's going to do? Deny him. Now, here's why this is so very important to you. Because so, what's so exciting about this fact is that when Jesus says it's always right, well, thank you, Kyle, you have profoundly beaten that point into our heads this morning. That's all really you've said. But now let's go to John chapter 14. You believe in God, believe also in me. Now what was Jesus' point here? Listen, you guys have been saying that God's right for hundreds of years. Now apply that to me. I am God. If you think God's right, then I'm always right. Okay, Jesus, what's about to happen? I'm about to go and be crucified, and you guys aren't going to see me anymore. But I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then surely I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. You mean to tell me, Jesus, that you're leaving this earth? Yes. But you're coming back? Yes. 
And any person who has obeyed you is going to be forgiven of their sins through the plan that you have had in your mind from before time began and you're going to take them back to heaven? Yes. You mean you're going to be alive all that time and we're not going to see you but you're going to be in heaven and you're coming back to get us and we'll get a resurrected body just like you've got? Yes. Well, that's hard to believe. You remember the fish? You remember the guy carrying the pot of water? You remember the prediction of my own death? You remember the prediction that you, Peter, would deny me? When I say it, it's always true. And you can rest your life. You can rely on. You can found everything you've got. You can put every egg you've got in the basket of, you believe in God? Believe also in me and my father's house and many mansions. If it weren't so, I would have told you. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, then surely I'll come again and receive you to myself. Is that true? Did Jesus say it? If Jesus says it, it's right. Sure appreciate you being here this morning. Enjoyed getting to be in Bible class and thank you for listening so well.